What is up, everyone, and welcome into the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining us shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, we'll get all caught up. Mike will give us his report from PASIC, and I'm heading off to Mexico City to play in the Laguna Drum Fest. We'll talk about that as well. In our education section, we'll talk about using the six-stroke roll on the drum set. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Russ Miller. In our gear review section, we'll be checking out some Tama Iron Cobra pedals. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Buddy, you're back from back from PASIC. Did you find out from anybody if it's PASIC or PASIC? Uh, no, it's it's PASIC. I'm just okay, going to say it is. It's universally known as PASIC. I've heard, it's, I think that's wherever you're from. Ah, that, the different tomato, tomato. Got yeah. it. Got it. Do you ever, uh, do you say uh, pasta or pasta? Pasta. Good man, good man. Does somebody say pasta? Actually, yeah, most Europeans say that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So they You're going to make have, some pasta. They just don't like, have the no. awe sound in there. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They got a garage instead of a garage. Oh, no. They got yeah, aluminium. Let's not do that again. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. All right, moving on. So first of all, tell me how it was pacing. So I'm, sh- I'm sure you saw a ton of people. <clears throat> I did. I mean, I, I was kind of like locked in the clinic room, so it wasn't a ton of social time during the event. I did get to okay. wander around in the uh, exhibit hall a little bit. Um. It's awesome, people. It wasn't the exhibit hall was smaller than in the years past. I think I don't really. Know, I think it's just been a down year, maybe for the industry in general. But there was still some cool stuff. Uh, Sabian had some. I think they were eighteen inch sick hats that were pretty crazy and weird. They've Man, got uh, holes all in them. It's getting silly. It's yeah. getting silly with that. I mean, my my biggest problem with going, even you know, I, I've been alternating between fourteens and fifteens. My biggest problem is what it does to my hi-hat stand. It puts my legs in an uncomfortable position. Yeah. So, um, cause I still want the edge of the hi-hat to be at the edge of my snare drum. I don't want, if I have 18s, I don't want three inches of hi-hat coming yeah, into be, my snare. Or right? you'd be like spread eagled. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. now as far as the exhibit hall, was it the way it normally is, which is 70 to 80% orchestral and marching and then a little bit of drum set, or was it a good split? I don't know what to make, breakdown would be but it's definitely more skewed towards classical and, okay. and marching stuff but you know there were drum sets there there were all the symbols that you know zildjian had their entire lineup not just their hand symbols cool um, sabian also had which were my favorites of the show they had 16 inch apollo hi-hats which are part oh, cool. of that from big, their big and ugly. big ugly those were awesome yeah. i really like those a lot that's cool <laughs> you know one thing that that's fun about basic though is at Nam, sometimes you don't you don't even know you're not made aware that Pearl makes gorgeous symphonic drums. Right. Or you know, yeah. there's a lot. Some of their top stuff that takes the most amount of craftsmanship is actually in their symphonic line from all of these companies. Yeah. So getting to see that stuff and you go like, oh, could you just change out the snares on the bottom and give me that one? That's <laughs> right. gorgeous. Like, so I, I think it is uh, eye opening for a lot of people to understand that these drum companies make a lot more than just our favorite 10 inch rack tom or whatever so. yeah and ludwig's partner company is is con selmer and they make you know they make band instruments they make probably most of their money saxophones and trumpets but they also i mean uh ludwig vibraphones musser yep. musser vibraphones are yep. very very popular so i imagine they probably make the bulk of their income not with drums well i mean minel's the same way the bulk of their income comes from percussion not cymbals so really oh cymbals is a yeah all you have to do is go to a your local guitar center and count up how many shakers they have from Minel and count how many cymbals, you know. They have yeah. thousands of little tiny... I mean, when you go to Minel's warehouses, you can see, okay, that giant building over there with the airplane hangar, that's our percussion department, and 
that house over there, that's symbols. So That's funny. And we put so much attention on the symbol side of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but and then no matter what you see, you know, and it's I mean, same for Toka, LP or whatever, but you could see the biggest artist in the world and, and you kind of forget, oh yeah, he is on a minor cajon or she is using a a, a minor shaker or whatever, or, yeah. or LP or Toka, but you kind of forget, well, they had to get it somewhere and they're probably artists. So yeah. um and then as far as the people you saw at Basic performing, anyone stand out? I mean, I'm sure they were all incredible. Yeah, it was there were no like huge marquee kind of surprises um it was mostly a pretty inside show which i don't know if that was uh something that pas did on purpose to kind of keep it more focused and not not bringing in like rock stars and things this year right uh, which i think made the clinics more clean and professional and and informative but it kind of left a little bit of the buzz kind of there was right. something to be desired but that said uh, we talked about marco georgievic last week he was yep he's still my my favorite of the week um, nice, Brian Carter, a young New York jazz drummer. He made okay. his, you know, he played. That was great. He's really, really kind of campaigning to to get young drummers to learn how to swing, which is awesome. Cool. Nothing, what a great thing. Know, nothing wrong with that. Matt Billingsley of Taylor Swift. He did something really cool. He he performed one of Taylor's songs, which has a lot of combination of live drums and and electronics. And he broke down exactly how he recreated the track and adapted the track to be better for live cool. it was really cool we talked about all the choices because really he i think most people probably think that you're kind of locked into like when when you get those gigs it's like here's what you do and you just learn the parts but he was given a lot of freedom to they just gave him here's the sound here's the drum samples that we used you figure out how to wow. how to make it work and you know where to put what the trigger what the loop what to play live man i mean what a cool thing because even if you were at a taylor swift concert you would never see what the drummer is actually doing, but to get rid of Taylor and her band and the lights and just have the drummer and find out, okay, whether it's Britney Spears, Taylor Swift, it doesn't matter, Miley Cyrus, that gig is not easy. Oh no, those gigs are never easy. They're actually to me much harder than a rock gig where all I'd have to do is play rock and roll drums. Yeah, um, yeah, he can't hit the wrong pad or it'll be like right. a hand clap <laughs> yeah. instead of a, a whatever yeah. a cymbal splash or something. Yeah, and uh, so I think that would be an awesome thing to see. I, I could imagine that'd be really cool. It was really cool, and and he went like kind of deep into the details of it. I I wish he would have had a chance to play a couple songs so we could kind of hear a bunch of different ways he does it. He just did one track. He only had an hour, so but it was still really neat to see that you know these guys aren't just you know monkeys on stage just for visual he he's really responsible for the production of the of this of the whole show and the fact that there are no live drums on this one particular track so he had to figure out where do i add the live element without Mm. destroying the the pop sound of the song very cool cool. um mike clark of you know classic yeah of, of uh herbie hancock was, and the i saw a little tiny clip of that but that was that was great to see man yeah so he um, brought his his jazz group and and you know did his thing um real real kind of he's kind of got like a gritty jazz vibe oh yeah so yeah. he's kind of going for it which i dig I, I met him when i was 17 i was working at my first music store drumming guitar city in Sacramento, and I'd only been there for about a week, and he just walked in, and I didn't know who he was. Um, I th- I was I was pretty sure I recognized him from ads in Modern Drummer, but I really didn't know Mike Clark and what in his past and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he just came in and he said, uh, "He's like, so you're a drum shop guy?" And that this is back when if you were a drum shop guy, you were clearly a drummer. You weren't an employee that sold drums. I mean, you were right. you committed to drums for your life. He says, "So you're you're the drum shop guy?" And I said, "I said yes, sir." And uh, he said, "All right." 
that glass room over there, can we use it? And it was a teaching room. And, and one of the things I loved about this store was our teaching rooms all had sliding glass doors so the customers could see lessons happening, which encouraged people to want to take lessons because huh. they could always see the lessons. And and the glass doors were very thick, so you couldn't really hear anything. So you weren't embarrassed if you were in there taking a lesson, but people could see you. So he goes, that glass room, can we use it? And I said, yeah, of course. And he just gave me like this 30-minute jazz lesson for no reason at all oh, and, wow, he, and he cool. was very nice and 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 he didn't at the end say now go buy my book you know he just <laughs> he was like he's like i hope that helps you and then he looked around the shop and they left like i think he just had a gig in sacramento that night he was checking out the local drum shops it was so cool man is he originally from it. your area he, he might Oakland? be a bay area guy yeah. yeah um but man he but he even then i mean that's uh 23 years ago he was gritty yeah, he was gritty and gravelly, and and uh, playing and and personality. But he was he was nice, man. He he was really cool. So I, I I will always remember that. And every time I see him on social media, he types in all caps. And oh, I, and he goes, he it. gives, he gives no craps, man. That's he's <laughs> no. a good. If you don't follow Mike Clark on Facebook, it's a good one. Just, I mean, he's got his opinions, and they are. There. It's coming. It's coming. And, and I, I, love I think it. it's funny because there's a little bit of humor in everything he posts. Yes, and he lets yeah. people comment and go kind of crazy on yeah it's page. it's it's kind of funny man so cool man well i'm glad you got to see him so and, and was he well received yeah yeah i mean he's great he's cool. a, you know he's a he's a living legend at this point yeah, so exactly um i'm gonna just kind of whip through a few of the other ones klaus hessler gave a clinic on friday oh, nice. he was talking about the idea of collapsing rudiments which i i guess jim chapin kind of coined the idea where you adjust the spacing of the hands to create other sounding combinations but the sticking never changes oh wow that's such a simple concept and i've never even thought to do that and it was i mean when he demonstrated it he i think he, what did he do he did um just an accent tap so your both hands were playing unison accent tap accent tap over and over okay. again but then he gradually uh jutted the left hand forward a little bit kind of uh-huh. to make the spacing tighter and tighter and tighter so it kind of just went through this like weird phasing effect okay. until it became like almost felt like it was swinging. So then it felt like sixteenth notes. So then it felt like they were back to unison again. And it, you know, conceptually, I'm like that. That sounds super cool and not too hard to understand. But I have no idea what he's doing. Like I, I told him afterwards. Like I think everyone needs a private lesson on that because yeah. you can say, yeah, just just shorten the distance between the two hands, and it'll right. you know you'll, you'll discover all these new rhythms, but. I couldn't figure it out. I don't know if he was speeding it up or if he was just right. moving it forward on the timeline, but it was it was really cool. It sounded like he was playing a Steve Reich piece by, you know, by himself. Really? Like he was yeah, playing yeah, yeah. drumming by himself because it just phased and phased and it got back to unison again. Really but cool. But even, even just the thought of taking multi-note group, you know, a paradiddle and seeing how many rhythmic possibilities you can create inside that sticking pattern. Exactly. Or, oh, it's beautiful. And then he That's took awesome. it. he took it to the drum set and – and played I can't remember what what rudiment he used. It might have been the the flam tap, I think. Okay. And did the same thing. And it was just it created just this whole other world of sound that like it was it was familiar and really foreign at the same time. That was, man's got some serious control. Yeah. It was very cool. So awesome. I, he still owes me a lesson on that. I'll I'll try <laughs> to follow up with him. Uh, you know, Yost was there, he was you know, doing a lot of stuff out of his book. Um, there was some let's see, Saturday there were a lot of guys, I and mean, we could follow up with a lot of these guys later as featured artists. But JoJo definitely had the you know the most uh, buzzed about clinic. Sure, his band was there to do the final concert on Saturday night. Oh, cool! 
but so then in the afternoon he had just a drum clinic with just himself, which was unique because I've seen him five or six times and he, in his clinic he usually tries to combine the music as well. So he usually is playing tracks and throwing in more philosophical stuff in the clinic. But this time there were no tracks. It was just him and a drum set. Really? And he just talked about his approach to practicing and how he thinks about the different compartments of what constitutes a great drummer okay which is really cool so the the illustration he used was you know the john bonham symbol the three interlocking circles yeah yeah so he he said that's think of that diagram and in the top one you put the physical side of drumming and then in the bottom left you put the conceptual side of drumming and in the bottom right you put the emotional wow so he, he divides all of his practicing into where does it where does it fall into is it a physical thing? Is it a conceptual thing? Is it an emotional thing? You know, it's funny. Uh, so physical for me is stage one, non-creative. Uh, conceptual is stage two, creative. And then there's a missing stage for me, which is emotional. emotional yeah. And it's not missing in my practice. I mean, I, I do carve out time to close my eyes at some point and say, okay, I've done my preparation. I'm just going to throw down. like, mm. And not throw down, show off. But I'm just going to see what happens. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but it, it's more meditation for me on the instrument. I'm just meditating. Yeah. I'm, it's it's a pretty neat thing, and I, I I'm sure you know this because I know that you've um, even studied a little bit of meditation. But there's something that probably can't be achieved in any other discipline that I can think of where all four of our limbs are doing independent things, and we're thinking of none of them. Yeah. Right. And when I'm practicing, I am thinking of them. But when I get into the emotional side, and I just kind of close my eyes, I. I turn my lights down a little bit and it's there's some different plane that your brain goes to when all four limbs are doing something and you're just floating on a cloud man i i know it sounds super hippie but it's it, it happens to me almost every day so yeah that's the out of body stuff that we all kind of search for i mean that's what yeah. everyone you get a taste of it you're like how did i do that one day and i can't do it the next day you know what's crazy mike is i can't i'm still i can do that almost every day what i can't do yet is i can't do it in front of a crowd yeah, I don't know why I can't. And the people that I look up to the most are the people. It's I never look up to their drumming. It's that I don't think if you just flipped a switch and the crowd went away, I don't think Steve Jordan would know. Right. And if you flipped yeah. a switch and the crowd turned on in a practice space, I don't think J.P. Bouvet would know. Yeah. I don't think they care. I, and and I'm striving so hard to get to that place where it's like, you know, Matt, J.P. and myself in a car ride on the Common Thread Tour one time said, let's see how close we can get tonight to actually seeming like we're in our practice space. Mm. And then we measured it when we got and it was like, Matt, how, how close was that to you at practice? And he was like, 10%. Yeah. That's how far away I was from that. Um, only 10% of that feeling. So, and 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 for me, I was like uh, 1%. <laughs> like, yeah. I was so cognizant of every note that I played. I think I, a lot of it, that's, that's kind of where playing with other human beings really comes into play because yeah. it, I think it's, to play by yourself and get to that point is, I mean, that's, I don't, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing if you can yeah. just disappear inside yourself. But when you're interacting with other people, they're going to inspire you and they're going to, you know, you're going to get interlocked on an on mm -hmm. emotional level where the, the time stands still. 
Yeah. And that's that. I mean, in my past, that's what I was so used to was like, okay, well, I had that every night on stage with my buddies and we weren't playing improvised music. So I really wasn't thinking because we yeah. had played these songs a million times. And then all of a sudden I'm doing clinics and I'm like, uh, I'm present for every single, single yeah. stroke. I mean, I would love to get to that place where somebody in a clinic says, hey, what did you do at this part? And I say, I have no idea. That would be a beautiful thing. Yeah. Right well, now I'd yeah. be like, oh, let me pull out the PDF for you. <laughs> I know I mean, exactly I, what it is. I think that's why we practice things that are difficult because the, the instrument is so hard and, and if if we're struggling just to execute stuff there's no way you can get to that emotional level because you're just yeah. you're focused on like how can i play this groove and not have it just crumble Fall on apart. us so i think that's yeah. that's kind of the uh you know i don't know what you would call that just the out of reach goal for most of us is we mm-hmm. have to first conquer the instrument on a physical level right uh, and jojo talked about like the imbalances that most of us have because we spend so much time on the physical side uh but if you if you have strong physical drumming and good emotional drumming, but you have no concept, you're, then you're probably just sounding like somebody else because you haven't right. came up with any ideas on your own. If you have a strong physical capabilities and strong concept but no emotion, you're going to sound like a robot. Yep. Uh, so he said, and I tend to agree that you can actually have a, a, a you can be insufficient in the physical side, but be 100 percent in the conceptual and the emotional, and still be a great drummer. I totally agree with that. Because we overlook totally the emotion. Agree. I think we just, in general, overlook the power of just being an emotional artist. But is it, I mean, and that's what you told me. I think it was maybe when we were, we were covering drum solos. It was like three or four podcasts back, and you said, all you look for is somebody's emotional connection to what they're doing right. when you, because you've seen a million drum solos at every festival in the world and you've covered right. everything. So at that point, it's like, you're not going to blow me away with your drumming. You're going to blow me away with, are you, are you present for what you're doing? Are, do you mean it? You know, I guess yeah. that's what it comes down to. Do you actually mean this? Or is it just something to check off the list? I did a solo in seven, eight yeah, because exactly. it was in seven, eight. Yeah. Um, so, so I can share one of Jojo's techniques. He uses to practice this stuff. Yeah. It was really, really cool. Um, he first thing he did was just he just play, said just play a paradiddle on one sound on endless repeat and use nothing but dynamics and touch and where you're hitting the drum to create music out of that. So then he had to do nothing. It was all emotion because he had there was no concept. You're just playing a paradiddle and there's no physicality to it because you're not moving around. So he had right. to completely create an emotional response just with dynamics and hitting near the edge, hitting in the center, uh, accenting one hand versus the other. And did he achieve that in your mind when you were listening to it? Yeah, I mean, again, it sounded like a, a, a symphonic percussion piece, which a minimalist piece, Steve Reich or somebody, they've, right. they've written these kinds of pieces where you have to make music with one sound source. And he turned the, the snares off, so it was just like the, the open sound. Nice. But what was really impressive was when he went to the kit and he... He limited himself to right-left kick, and then the orchestration was right-side floor tom, snare drum, bass drum, and then he switched to right on the snare drum, left on the left-side snare with the snares off, okay. and bass drum. So he had this movement, this kind of elegant movement that he had to adhere to, okay, which was tricky enough. Yeah. But then Got he it. had to create music out of that with dynamics and accents mm-hmm. And and nothing else changed, so it was just a constant triplet, right? And the orchestration never changed. But when you start accenting different bits of that, all of a sudden these melodies pop out. And it was really amazing. He could have done that for an hour, and I would have been just riveted. 
Yeah, I had a, actually a solo on that. Uh, I didn't mean to hijack it, but I had a solo on that at the London Drum Show, which was, you know, if you can't master three notes, what are you doing trying to master ninety six notes right, per measure? Yeah. You know, um, and, and so, and I, I would assume <laughs> that seeing jo- one thing, I, I had freedom of orchestration, so I can imagine. It's even more hypnotic when the orchestration stays the same. Did the yeah. rate stay the same? He did. Uh, so it was well, he would, he started out in triplets, then he stopped and said, "All right, now I'm going to do the same thing in sixteenth notes." And then you, that creates a whole another level of melody cool. because you've got cross rhythms and stuff happening. Yes. But the orchestration did not change. He didn't go from triplets to sixteenths within one solo. Okay, That's so it's really just cool. this constant bed of this melodic, rhythmic, consistent thing oh. with all That's these really cool. shapes popping out of it. It was it was. It was amazing. I mean, for probably well, for and if some it's people, by somebody like JoJo. Yeah, exactly. Well, it just showed the power of touch, you know, of yeah. of touch and dynamics, and you know, being trying to convey an emotion without. I mean, he didn't do any licks, any tricks, any JoJo stuff. No one-handed right. rolls, and it wasn't even that fast. I mean, he was probably doing it like triple lit, triple lit, triple lit, triple lit. Right. It wasn't even. There was nothing like beyond the capability of any other human in the room. Isn't but. Don't you think maybe, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you think maybe that's what makes a great clinic is when instead of being dominated, we're reminded of the fundamentals of drumming by the greatest drummers on the planet? Yeah. When we say like, okay, you know what? I'm striving so hard to learn all of this dense, dense material, but I don't even have a paradiddle down on that level yet. And that's right. my biggest preaching point to every student I ever come in contact with is, man, you have... 15 C minuses in the world of drumming and you don't have one single A. Get an A in something, man. Just go so far down that rabbit hole that you actually can tell me a few years from now, yeah, from 2015 to 2017, all I really did was focus on my time. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, and you have great time for the rest of your life. You have great time. You just have to maintain it now. But, um, you know, and I think that that's an important lesson. So I think that's cool to see. I would have loved to see somebody like Jojo Mayer and in that moment, be reminded, I could practice that right now. I could practice that hell in my hotel room on my on my hands and knees. Exactly, and, oh, that's yeah. beautiful. And, it was, and he was he was practicing too. It wasn't like he was rehearsing. Right. So there, you saw that he would he would kind of hit a rim or something by accident, and he would just work on it and keep going. But he never stopped that flow. Yeah. And it and it never became. It wasn't ever like oh he messed up. It was just another sound, and, and it still fit. I mean he. Again, his just having touch and a concept kind of overtook everything, and it was so that was his demonstration of the the importance of focusing on your concept and your emotional expression rather That's than awesome, just man. the physical. I mean, but that that said, he spent thirty years developing the physical side of his drumming to a right. freak show point. So there has to be a balance of all three. But that was definitely the one that I left there. Like I, that was inspiring, and I, I could do that today. Right. Um, and it reaffirmed that I think that our sound and touch is, is paramount. I love it, man. That's awesome. Very yep. cool. I'm glad you had a good time. Well, do you want to maybe uh, push the six-stroke roll to next week so we can go deep into it? Because that was a, a half-hour wrap-up. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, we mean, can, or we can just touch on it quickly. I mean, I would love to I, – I don't know what you do with it. Um, you know, I think we both probably use it as the Motown lick. We could uh, probably do do a little bit on it. A little touchy-touchy? Yeah, yeah. All right. So the six-stroke roll in general, I think, is a bit of a new thing as far as what we now consider to be the six-stroke roll. I think the general consensus 
from drum set players that did not study their rudiments since they were kids is that a six-stroke roll is 16th note triplets with a single followed by two doubles and another single. That's yeah. not the original six-stroke roll. Um, so as far as how do you see a six-stroke roll? Do you see it as the doubles are twice as fast as the two singles, or do you see it as a 16th note triplet type thing? Uh, both, but okay. um, it's usually just depending on what kind of phrasing. So I sometimes I play it as every note is evenly spaced, so it sounds like triplets or 16th note triplets, or sometimes I play the inner notes as double strokes, so then it sounds a little bit more uh, jagged of a phrasing. Okay, but I still think of it as just a six-stroke roll. It's not. It's not anything. Right. And I, and I also think of all the variations and inversions of that sticking as still being the six-stroke roll. Got it. Um, but what's kind of interesting is that's also the paradiddle diddle. Exactly. So you can use. Yeah. They're interchangeable, and that's why I think the paradiddle diddle, aka the six-stroke roll, is probably the most valuable and important rudiment that we could we could totally master. agree. I mean, it unlocked so much for me when I really dug into that rudiment. Yeah, and it's not that hard to master. Not that hard to get good control no. of. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, that became. It's probably still my most frequent fill or filler yep. when I'm trying to transition <laughs> between stuff. Or it's my get out of, get out of jail free card. If things are going bad, yeah. I can just jump to that, and it allows me time to reset my mind while that's just flowing out of me. But it's also one of those rudiments. Whether you use it as the six stroke roll sticking or as paradiddle diddle. It's one of those rudiments that you don't have to do anything to it for it to be usable immediately. The day you learn it on a pad, you actually can go to the kit and do something with it. It could be a groove. It could be a fill. It could be something over an ostinato. But when when you learn a Swiss triplet and then you go to the kit yeah. and you're like, oh, well, that doesn't <laughs> sound quite as cool as it did on the pad. And you have to actually adapt it. Yeah. Uh, not the six-stroke roll and not the paradiddle diddle. It's, it's one of those things where it's like uh, this could be a groove right now. Yeah, and, it's, and I like that it's made up of – two kind of uh, mirror images so you have a right left left and then you have a right right left so yep. you can you can just start stringing those two chunks together and create endless phrasing that just flows and it's seamless but it's still essentially the six stroke roll or the paradiddle diddle you're just playing the yep. first half or the second half of it yeah i mean i i look at it as the way i don't know i'm assuming you've seen this just because it's a modern drummer product but so when jojo and nerve played the modern drummer festival were mm-hmm. you part of modern drummer at that time yeah, I introduced him. Okay. That was my first festival. Oh, no way. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so you know the after part where he's on the pad kit mm-hmm. in the DVD series? So he's talking about drum and bass being almost like a sentence is the groove, and then you start stuttering that sentence. Yeah, chopping it up um, into beats or yeah, half beats. Yeah, so it's yeah. where's the bathroom, where's the bathroom, where's the, where's the bathroom, the bathroom. Right, right. So I see the six-stroke roll as that. I see mm-hmm. the right, left, left, and the right, right, left as – as two parts of a sentence and I just start stuttering and I start, you know, stammering and I'm going, you know, and I just start stuttering those two chunks. And then, like you said, it's, it's literally endless. Yeah. When people bring me like, you know, uh, a Gene Krupa thing or a Buddy Rich thing, I just say, just learn these two chunks of notes, right, left, left and right, right, left. And you are literally done. Like exactly. And I think, I mean, that's, that's kind of the key. I've talked with this with several people that want to have. They say they want to have this like flowing type of sound. I'm like, if you like Keith Carlock, if you like Steve Gadd, if you like Vinny Cody, if you like Steve Smith, if you like Dennis anyone Chambers, named Steve. I mean, they're all using this idea, which is yeah. single stroke accents followed by double strokes. And 
and most of it comes from the six-stroke roll or the paradiddle diddle. I mean, that is yeah. the language. So you're taking the accents, moving around the toms, hitting the crash with the bass drum, and you're yep. just playing the doubles on the snare drum. Yeah. That's that's kind of the modern language that we've all built, you know, our playing on. I'm trying to get away from it and go back to single strokes a little bit, right? Just because I, that's all I did for 20 years was play double strokes on the kit. Yeah, um, and, I, and it can also become are, it can become a cop out a little bit. It, it's, yeah, it's it's kind of like I'm not going to be creative right now, and this will just flow out of me fine. And not everything needs to have 30 second notes in it. <laughs> no, no. Actually, uh, that's a that's definitely something I do with my students. Is we will listen to two or three songs that they deem to be drum songs, and I'm like, you let me know when you hear a fill over two beats long. Yeah, you let me know when you hear 30 second notes in this drum song. Like, right. Yeah. Now take that to pop or blues or anything normal. And I'm telling you, and, and the other thing that I think would be really beneficial for drummers is count how many crashes in a in a song happen. It might be a lot less than than you're doing right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. <laughs> so. I think it's that first track. Uh, is it called Heartbreak Warfare? John yeah. Mayer Battle Studies. I mean, when Steve Jordan finally hits a crash, you're like, ah, there it is, because yeah. he just yeah, plays yeah. that one groove and, for like four. And it has a role. It has yeah. a role to play. So, well, yeah, I think the six-stroke role is something that um, definitely it's one of the few must-haves that I don't allow my students to get out of. So, if somebody came to me and said, "Mike, do I have to do pataflaflas?" I'd be like, "Eh, if you want, if you, if you if you like the flam thing." Then yeah, I, I definitely suggest you learning your flammed rudiments. Do I have to learn book reports? It's like eh, I've never used one, and I can do them <laughs> fine on a pad. But when they say, "Do I have to learn the six stroke roll?" I said, "Yes." Yeah, you know, I can't get you out of that one. That and paradiddle, you have to have it because it's just, especially for people. Let's say that you feel a little awkward doing the halftime shuffle thing. Literally mm. play a paradiddle diddle, you know, between hats and snare. Come down to the snare on two and four, and it's like you will get us through this halftime triplet feel song just fine without having to play a halftime shuffle so yeah. uh there, there's so many reasons to learn this rudiment so everyone get on your six stroke roll the other thing is then go klaus hessler on it and start chopping up the rhythms inside that six note sticking pattern yeah i mean i think we've probably we've probably used it more than anything else i think is that yeah. just that basic or just the concept of a single followed by a double that's one of my favorite syncopation applications. I mean, and that's what everyone teaches is to play a constant double stroke roll and just accent what the rhythms yep. on the page. And it's almost always ends up being a paradiddle diddle or a, or a six stroke roll variation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you, man. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into our featured artist. I cannot believe this hasn't been our featured artist yet. Um, his, he's definitely in my mind, one of the unsung heroes of the drum industry while also being touted as one of the heroes of the industry. He's been around forever and yet he's still on top of his game. And, uh, he wrote a bunch of articles for modern drummer uh, a little while ago. I don't know if he's still doing stuff, but I know that he yeah. was, he is. Okay. Yeah, so he, he took over, um, Roy Burns's column, right? Exactly. Yeah. I invited him to write and he, cause I knew he would be a good one to just have, it's in, under concepts, which is all text, just whatever topic you want to mm-hmm. kind of go off on. It's fair game. And so I knew he would have a lot of opinions. He's been around for a while. So he's well, been, I think it's been a year and a half solid that he's written every month awesome. for it. Well, let's give uh, him. Uh, let's give his name. His name is Russ Miller, and he has played with Nelly Furtado, Ray Charles, Tina Turner, Meredith Brooks. He's been. If you've ever seen a movie, then you've heard him. He seems. It's like he's on every movie soundtrack 
ever. I think if I maybe you know, I think he was doing something for the new Avatar soundtrack for Avatar Two. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, know he did Rugrats and Boondock, Boondock Saints, Resident Evil. Those are in his bio on in the magazine. Yeah, I mean, and t- countless TV shows. He's one of those guys that's just in the studio doing it all the time. And Russ Miller, the biggest compliment I can give Russ is we're doing a uh, the the what's it called the big big beats or whatever where they um, in the Seattle at Don Woodstick? Bennett's. Woodstick, yeah. yeah. We're doing Woodstick. Russ was on it. JP was on it. JP didn't know who Russ was. JP, mm-hmm. if you guys have never seen JP play, he's pretty darn good at the drums. Russ starts warming up for soundcheck, and JP leans over to me and goes, that's what I want to sound like when I grow up. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a pretty big compliment. And, yeah, he's got the Weckle thing. He can do all that fusiony Weckle stuff. Yeah. He's got the Benny Greb thing he can do – or the Steve Smith thing. He can do all the Indian stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know – and he can do the big band thing. He's a he's a quintuple threat. Yeah. He's, and he's, he's a bad did, man. He he's a product developer as well. I mean, the sub yeah. kit kick that we've all used a bazillion times was his. I mean, it wasn't his invention. Guys been doing that forever, but he kind of formulated this product that yep that, that you see on every backline and the most cross studios. stick thing that Yamaha put out right for thirteen inch snare drums. I use it on snare a, drums. I use it on a little ten inch. Tama, yep. the one that has the jingles in it. I, I use that with my electronic band. Love he it. He also um, has the first – I don't know if it's the first, but it's the first one I'd ever seen. He has a cowbell with vinyl that has internal dampening. Oh, right. So yeah. Which So because I always put gaff tape around my cowbell and we were doing the thing for you guys, uh, Drum yeah, Days. Columbus, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, he's, and I said, man, my cowbell – didn't make it through uh like i think someone stole it out of my cymbal bag when i was flying or something and he said oh you can use mine i'm I'm a minor artist as well a uh, percussion artist and he had a signature cowbell and i was like what does this do and he's like oh that's screw that's that's the internal dampening and i'm like how the hell is people have people not done this <laughs> right it's the first thing you do when you get a cowbell is you put gaff tape all over it. i'm like that's brilliant so yeah and um i have to say he's been responsible for two of the best pep talks in my entire life um oh yeah Without a doubt. Uh, one was right after drum days. I came up to him. He was getting ready to leave, and I apologized for for my drumming. And he – in it was a big brother moment. And he he said, look, Mike. I said, man, that was like a 70% version of me. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry that's the first time you've ever heard me play. And he said, no, that's exactly who you were. That perfect studio in Folsom, California with your lighting and your kit, that's not reality. That's – that's a fantasy that you created. That version of you out there in front of those people on that kit when your cymbal stand fell down, all that that's the reality. And then he just left. He didn't like <laughs> he didn't like then put his hand on my shoulder. He just left and I had to like fly home with that. And I, I had to really think about the look on his face when he said it. And I had to think like, no, he wasn't being mean. He was actually saying, Okay, this is a moment for me to shape a young drummer's life and I'm going for it. And he did it. Yeah. And then uh, to, and, it, and it changed everything for me. From that moment, I've never once apologized for my drumming. Whatever mm-hmm. it was is what it was. And then uh, then we were in Spain together doing a festival in Spain with uh, Dennis Chambers. Uh, and um, same thing. I said, man, are, aren't you nervous? Like we got to play like with Dennis and, and Wolfgang Hoffner and all these – and Josh Dion. He's like, why the hell would I be nervous about Dennis being here? He's already here. I don't have to be him. And that's when he gave me the speech about – no one on this festival can be more Mike Johnston than you if you just get out of your own way. Yeah. And I just – and 
once again, it changed everything for me. I just started focusing on the things that make me me, and I just said, "Look, this is who I am." So he's been my uh, uh, my unpaid psychiatrist. So I'm a. <laughs> You know, and he happens to be one of my favorite drummers. Both times I've played with him, you know, I was I was in the front row um, to watch him play. And so. he was at, at drum days. I was um, I was impressed by how he was in the wings, just checking out everybody. And it wasn't he was there with his arms crossed, evaluating. He was there to actually enjoy it and to find. I mean, I even remember him commenting on some different things people said. And he's like, I've got to work on that. I mean, he's a he's a forever student of the drums, which is really inspiring. I think his yeah. comment to you touches back on the idea of. How open can you be in front of an audience? How how vulnerable and emotional can you allow yourself to be? Yeah. I mean, well, I and you know what's funny is is I remember that festival. I don't know if you remember, but I think he came to that festival straight from Australia. And I remember his leg, like he was limping um, a little bit. And he said, yeah, I, mean, I, just, I just took like a 20-hour flight. And my leg's pretty jacked up from sitting in coach for 20 hours. I don't remember that. And, um, and I remember... He didn't mention that to the crowd. He didn't. He didn't say, "Hey, I'm sorry if my double bass isn't as clean as normal. My leg is." Cra-. He. It was like, <laughs> well, they don't care. What the how? What do they care? Like, it is what it is. And he's never made any excuses. The other thing that's pretty rad is he played a medley uh, in Spain, and it was all songs that he'd played on. And everyone backstage, Josh Dion, myself, Wolfgang, a few other guys, everyone was like. He's on that? He's on that. I mean, it was like hit after hit after hit. It was unreal <laughs> how many hits that guy's been on. So, um, yeah, I think he's another one of those guys where he doesn't have the time to constantly tell us what he's doing on social media because he's too busy doing it. So yeah. um, I think yeah. it's pretty rad, man. And the article he wrote for us in the issue we're still talking about December is, is a pretty interesting one where he's kind of exactly what we've been alluding to this whole episode is the title is are you playing the drums or are the drums playing you so wow. the whole i mean it's not a super long article but the whole premise is you know are you do you have to have your perfect setup do you have to have the perfect environment and the perfect situation or or are you barely able to play the songs i mean it's it's kind of touching on exactly what we're talking about of being over prepared being, being willing to just go and do your thing anywhere anytime on any kit with anyone standing by uh, one thing I've, I've you know because i think you and i are the same like we go to nam and it's like don't put me on a drum set I'm, i just right. don't want to play drums but i think right. part of that is we know how annoying it is when people go nuts on the drum but the other side of it is you also know that there's a thousand people that are going to hear you and someone and might walk by and Yep. It's like, wow, he's really sounding like crap today. <laughs> um, so I think there's a part of me that just envies guys like like drum days, for instance. I remember being there for Soundcheck, and Russ just sat down and was just comfortable and just started playing his drums. There were people you know, milling around. There were sound guys who were putting mics all over his kit, but he didn't it didn't he wasn't shy. He wasn't he didn't apologize. Right. And he play, sat down and played and it sounded great. And knowing right. that, like you and I are standing right there, and Greg and Hutchinson, Greg Hutchinson. Is hanging <laughs> yeah. around, and... that's the one I was worried about. <laughs> I was so, like, I'm not even touching my ride while that guy's here. And it wasn't like he was oblivious, because some guys, like the typical Nam guys, they're just right. oblivious. They just, yeah, yeah, no, they're just trying, or they're just trying to impress you. They they know you're there, and you're like, hey, I want to get this guy to to pay attention to me. Whereas that confidence of just, I'm going to sit down and do my thing, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be concerned. I'm just going to be comfortable. Uh, right away I think yeah. that's to be commended he's one of those guys which is why you become an in-demand session guy it's like 
we got a 50 piece orchestra in the studio and you've got two takes to nail this chart right you better make it sound like you've been playing it for a year and i mean he has that thing i i think if i was going to hire somebody to be on any project that was pressure packed it would either be Vinny or russ yeah and that really is it and it's not they're my favorite drummers or they're the best drummers i just don't think the pressure ever gets them and they've just been in these situations they hold themselves as professionals and even if they're the pressure was getting to either of them you would never know it and that relaxes everybody around you yeah that's what i'm looking for when i hire anybody for anything uh it would be can you be the cream in the coffee when things are getting completely tense i don't see russ like throwing a music stand across the room yeah right like guys let's do this or like Uh, holding up the session because his rack tom is drifting or something like that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't even imagine, like, oh my gosh! No, he's he's a true professional, man. I, I'm a huge fan of Russ. Always have been. I also want to mention if you guys go to, uh, I believe it's probably just Russ Miller. Yeah, RussMiller.com, yep. and click on Media Store. One thing that's really cool is the last two solo records that he's done, Arrival and Symbolism. He has those for sale, obviously, uh, but he also has them as minus drums as play-alongs so you can buy the album listen to russ do it and then if you really like the song and say i wish i had a chance to play on that then you can buy that album without the drums which is a very cool thing i mean most artists are too protective of their material to ever let you make your youtube video with their track or whatever so um so i think it's pretty cool and and you might find a whole new respect for russ miller when you're like i could play that song and he's like, go for it. Let's see what you got. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So, yeah, so definitely check out his website. Um, if you have a traditional mouse, um, definitely stretch out your index finger before you start scrolling down on his discography. It's about <laughs> 450 different uh, scrolls before you get to the bottom. I mean, it's unreal how much stuff this guy's done. Really cool stuff. Um, and he's he's played with everybody. So share Bobby Caldwell. I mean, Ugh, it just it never ends i can just like scroll randomly and then it's like oh there's another thing and he did this tv show and did this so uh definitely check out russ miller uh, i'm a huge fan as you can tell in, in my voice and uh, <laughs> i don't think you'll be disappointed at all all right now let's talk about some gear now this isn't one that we have sound of but i don't think um I'm, i think maybe you and i we were so excited when we started this podcast to actually bring people sound We've definitely skipped hardware for the most part. Um, yeah, because we always want to show, we want to give people the sound. But yeah, and this might be our first no audio supplemental episode. Yeah, since episode one. Hey, it's my gift to you. You don't have to do any <laughs> editing. You just have to take out a couple of coughs here and there. There we go. <laughs> oh, oh, cue. Oh, on beautiful. Cue. Sorry, on everybody. Cue. I'm um, getting over something vicious. You've been doing. You've you've held it together for forty eight minutes. I'm pretty <laughs> proud of you. But uh, yeah, so this is something that comes up a lot. I think my students mostly know that I'm a DW hardware artist, so they always feel a little timid to bring up the the big challenger, which is the Tama Iron Cobra. And I think it's it's a fantastic pedal. It's been around forever. And one thing I really love about Tama is they haven't gotten too silly with it over the time you know like Mm -hmm. well it's just complete it's like oh when i when i opened up their webpage i was like oh that's the iron cobra that's the new iron cobra is the iron cobra yeah Um, exactly and they just keep refining it and refining it and refining it and it's just a it's a workhorse of a pedal no doubt about it uh now do you um do you own an iron cobra or have you played one for reviews i do and you know what it is my fail safe if I'm really? playing like okay. a backline kit or something and they give me a choice, um, 
it's usually even over a DW five thousand. I'll I'll pick the Iron Cobra because I just know wow. that they're they're just solid. You know, yep. they, the linkage seems to hold up a little bit better. The hinge seems to hold up great. So yeah, I have one that's like always in my car. So cool. no matter what, I've always I know I've got that pedal, um, and it's actually um, one of the older ones. So the newer ones, they just they upgraded. It does, it looks pretty much the same. The beater's definitely different. Um, so yeah. they, they changed the beater, but they just updated all the little bits that were, you know, just needed some upgrading. The hinge is, is, is smoother now. I think it has, uh, has like skate bearings in it, I believe. Okay. Um, what else did they do? They do have the spring underneath the footboard. I was going to ask about that. Is, is that something you feel or, or what does that do? Does that throw it back up? Yeah, faster? you notice the return is just a little bit quicker. Okay. So the, the footboard kind of just stays locked to your foot a little bit better. I got you. You don't have that lag if if you're kind of more of a full leg player. The footboard, okay. yeah, just you don't really notice it, but I just noticed it at like I just felt like I was never like kicking the pedal. It was always okay. just connected to my shoe, no matter what. Which is super cool. Um, yeah, they put uh, a new bearing hinge in there. Um, so the Speed Cobra and the Iron Cobra. Um, are the two different pedals? Speed Cobra is like all silver looking. The Iron Cobra is the one that we've we've seen forever with the black footboard. Right. Um, so the difference is the throw on the Speed Cobra is super fast. I mean, it it's it's not quite a direct drive, but it's more that type of a feel. Um, Got it. The Iron Cobra has the heavier, um, more accelerated throw, kind of like the DW style. And I was going to ask, do you know? Are they do they both? Offer the power glide and the rolling glide um, cams because I think so. okay because so. yeah I mean the power glide cam has the offset cam and the rolling glide is just a round cam no, similar the, to the turbo and the accelerator in DW yeah the Speed Cobra only has the rolling cam I gotcha okay um, the Iron Cobra can have either one got it very yeah. cool yeah so the yeah, rolling I mean, glide is the, the consistent speed from from start to finish whereas the power glide it gets quicker as you get closer to the head got it got it yeah i mean i it's just you know like i said i'm I'm a dw hardware artist guy so i don't have the opportunity to play all this stuff all the time but when i looked at it oh by the way kudos tama for your website you have a very good website Um, (laughs) great pictures i mean this is a very modern website but when i got to their website i was like God, I forgot what how well constructed that pedal is, especially for heavy hitters. You know, yeah. if you're if you're out there and it's flying in and out of your gig bag every day, and if you're somebody like me that doesn't take care of their equipment at all, like yeah. I, when they give me that pedal box that it comes with, I, I literally just throw that in the trash. Yeah, right. I, right. You know, so it's like this thing is just a workhorse of a pedal, and, yeah. uh, and they don't skimp on all the things that really matter, like the way the the chain connects to to the linkage. It's, it's a real sturdy piece so you can and it's also you can just very quickly just snap it right off so when i yep. when i put the pedal in my case i just snap the, the spring off throw it in the bag i don't have to worry about the spring getting bent or that like i think some of the pedals just have like a thin metal hook that gets right. stretched over time um the little bits like that 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 make this for me like the the best you know lifetime pedal um purchase um and all their hardware i think that Tama, I mean, they're getting over it now, but for years they were just thought of being like a heavy metal company and, and right. everything being really huge and, and bulky. But I think their hardware overall is just is incredible, even the lighter yeah. weight stuff. I mean, honestly, you know, it's it's tough. I mean, 
DW for a while kind of became the top standard and then Gibraltar became the affordable standard. And then Pearl and Tama for a while had to find where do we fit in this? And Tama, to their credit, they just didn't give up. They're like, yeah. well, I'm sorry. I, they've, it's got to be annoying to DW. Like, <laughs> go away, Tama. Why do you keep making such good products? But it's like, dude, they, they're just still here. And I mean, Pearl makes great products too. But, um, you know, I don't think people realize until they really step back that not every drum company makes hardware. And some yeah. don't make very good hardware. Um, yeah, it's just not true. what they focus on. And Tama makes great hardware along with Pearl and DW. So, uh, yeah, so everybody, if you get a chance to go to your local music store, see if they have the new 900 series Iron Cobra. And then, and you guys reviewed the Speed Cobra as well? Yeah, we did. So if, okay. if you need to play really fast, quick stuff, the Speed Cobra will be the way to go. If you just need a workhorse, do everything pedal, the Iron Cobra is as good as you can get in my mind. Nice. I love it, man. I love it. Well, you don't get to hear that, but just imagine that Mike's feet and my feet are flying. All right, let's get to some listener questions. All right, where are we at? First one is from Josh Doyle. He says he recently bought a chrome over brass pearl Jupiter snare, which is a, an old vintage drum. Um, when he got the drum, he realized that it had a parallel strainer, and he has no idea how to adjust it or replace it. Um, um, so base, and you can't find anything online about how to replace it. Um, so his question is: Should I sell this drum and get another chrome over brass snare that has a more traditional setup, or should he take off the parallel strainer and retrofit it with something like a trick system? Um, he really likes the sound of this drum, but he doesn't want to ruin its value uh, by hopelessly retrofitting it. So, what do we suggest? That one's a hundred percent you, buddy. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I don't know what you paid for this drum. I would imagine maybe a couple hundred bucks. Um, I think it comes down to do you think you're ever going to resell it or not? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, are you using it or are you just collecting it? If you're never going to resell it, then do what you need to do to make it work for you. Uh, I would suggest reaching out to a uh, someone who specializes in drum repairs or customizations so they can look at it and make sure that they'll have suggestions on what might fit. I did this recently with a... A, uh, a Gret shell at a chrome over brass Gret shell that I sent down to Bruce Hagwood at RBH Drums because it was just a raw shell with no lugs, no anything. Okay. And I was like, I don't know what's going to fit on this thing because there's all kinds of weird holes. Just whatever you need to do, make it happen. So he just he just hooked it up, and I just got the drum back the other day. And there's no way that I would have been able to find a strainer that fit it to make it work right. So is that the one you sent me a picture of? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I just that's got it cool. Yesterday. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't buy it like that. You just had the shell. It was just a raw shell. Oh, cool, yeah. man. So the strainers are tough because they're not all measured the same. They're not all, you know, the, the screws don't fit in the same spots. So, so Josh, I would definitely get some professional advice um, before you do that. But I wouldn't be afraid to retrofit it if you can't find a replacement system. I don't love those parallel strainer systems. I think they were a bit of yeah. a, a fad in the 70s and 80s or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I would, if you're going to keep it, get that thing to work so you can use it at every gig. If you're going to sell it, then keep it original, sell it now, and get something else because there's so many chrome over brass snares out there. Right. You could find, probably for the same price, you could probably find a, a Slingerland or a Gretsch or a new Gretsch, an old Slingerland, a new Gretsch. Yeah. There's so Oops. many options. So um, it just depends on how much you love it. I mean, I know that's a great drum. I'm pretty sure that Stuart Copeland used that drum on a lot of police stuff. Really? So, yeah, it's like a heavy, cool. heavier brass shell. And that's with the old uh, 
the really highly coveted Superphonics from the 60s or maybe it's the 50s. They're, I mean, you can't even, they're hard to find for like under a thousand bucks now. The, the wow. chrome over brass versions. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of like Kenny Arnoff's secret weapon. Nice. So it's a good drum. So hopefully you can uh, make it work for you or sell it and find something that will. There you go. Next question is this is coming from Ramon. In regards to technique, most people believe that it doesn't really matter as long as you get the desired tone um, that we want, but it does matter when you're talking about being able to play for long periods of time, um, like when you're in your 60s and upward. Traditional mm-hmm. grip has been used since the beginning of the drum set, but there have been several famous drummers who have made the switch from traditional to matched because of physical pain um, using that technique. What do you guys think about that? Well, don't I? First of all, I wouldn't consider traditional grip to be a drum set thing at all. It 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 wasn't created for the drum set, and we don't know what technique would have been created if the drum set came before the single snare drum that mm-hmm. was slung over somebody's side. Uh, when you think of marching nowadays, you think of the marching drum in right on somebody's belt line, but that's not how it started. It was over on their hip, and so it's almost impossible to play matched grip when your drum is on your left hip. Mm -hmm. Uh, So traditional grip works for that. Then they created the drum set, and we brought our techniques over from that single drum to the drum set. So I've never thought of traditional grip as a drum set thing. I've always seen it as a leftover from single drum marching. Um, So... I think it comes down to your body. Uh, I've seen so many people change their technique as their body maybe broke down on them a little bit, or maybe even something happened, you know, like, hey, I got in a car accident. I can't, my pinky doesn't work anymore, whatever. And it's like, you just have to make it work. I think we all know the difference between pain when your body is starved of oxygen and then chronic pain. And if you're doing anything that's causing chronic pain, then you should change it. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's my biggest fear is that one day I sit down on the drum set and I go, uh, that's not a normal pain. And then it happens two days in a row and three days yeah, in a row. That's like right. a nightmare, you know? Um, so I, I don't want that to ever happen. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? I, I mean, I think it's, again, it's a fine line between learning a technique because it will allow you to play for 80 years and learning a technique because it allows you to sound really good. So, right. like, for me... Um, I don't necessarily go to like a molar style technique for most situations because I feel like it kind of lets the time slip a little bit. My mm. control is a little off. Yeah. But if I'm playing really ha- hard, long sets, rock and roll, I mean, I'm going to play with a loose grip to the point where I'm maybe even holding onto the stick with my ring finger and really just letting it just fly. Yeah. But if I'm playing really delicate, jazz or anything symphonic up a little bit my grip is super tight yep. but i'm only going to be playing for short spurts of time i'm not playing and for you're like playing at hour. a low dynamic generally. exactly yeah and the tension is not it's not like from the neck down it's just in my fulcrum right. is tighter good point yeah so i don't think the technique is to be blamed i think it's you have to have a purpose and an intention for what you're doing and realize that a tight hand technique is not going to be good for long stretches of playing and you can have a tight hand technique and still be relaxed. So you're not – most of the pain people have is shoulder, neck, and back pain. I have a, a quick question on that. Uh, probably 20 episodes ago, you were, your pick of the week was a yoga app. Do you remember which one it was? Was it Yoga Nidra? Yoga app? No, I had a – Or uh, a meditation app, sorry. Yeah, Headspace. Headspace. Okay, so there's – let me see if I can find it. 
Okay, so there's one called Yoga Nidra, which is pretty much the same thing. It's not yoga at all. It's it's the mindset of it. But what it does is it's, you know, this this guy who created this form of meditation and he walks you through pretty much from your forehead all the way down to your toes, relaxing mm. everything and being conscious of it, not just relaxing it, but being conscious of your ring finger and yeah. your palm and all that. So I would assume it's very similar. Um, I tried that. I use, and it's about a 10 minute process. I, I use that app while improvising on the drum set mm-hmm. and man, I was like jello by the end. And yeah. I don't think when you said the tension in your hands is only from the wrist down, I don't think people realize how many muscle groups they have activated that have nothing to do with the, the movement of that stick. Yeah. Gritting and your when teeth. you, yeah, and when you like touch them in their shoulder and say that, it has nothing to do with this, and they relax it. And then you touch them in their traps and their chest and their obliques, and it's like, dude, you are so tense. Yeah. And it's not helping. It's just it's just taking up oxygen in yeah. your body. So, I mean, even something like that might be helpful. But as far as technique goes, I think we're both on the same page, which is pay attention to chronic pain. That's different than exhausting your muscles of the oxygen they have. And you know, make sure that you're relaxed when you play. You'll be able to play for a long time if you stay relaxed. Yep. So let's do one more question. This one's kind All of right. funny. <laughs> this comes from uh, Drum Animity. He sent several questions, but I'm just picking one that I thought was funny. <laughs> Why do so many great drummers play such crappy music? <laughs> Dude. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, God. That's like the, the bane of my existence. Not even just what I listen to, but even... For me. So let me start because I'm the one that has to do these clinics. It is so not easy to get someone to write you a clinic track. It Mm. is very hard. Um, The cost of hiring a full band to to write me a track is not easy. And I don't – I'm not playing with musicians every day. And even if I did play with musicians every day, I would still never expect them to hook me up with a written track. I'd still have to pay them. All right, here's $500 make me a track in nine eight and then we go back and forth and back and forth so it's it's actually not that easy i i don't understand the laser beam thing you know but it's just part of it i think it's because usually when you hire someone to write you a track you generally just hire a keyboard player so he just keeps grabbing presets like ah trumpet preset nine (laughs) so um I mean, yeah, but I, I think, uh, but it's a real thing. It's an issue. It is. Well, I mean, I think it depends on what, what world you you live in, and yeah. and how do you define crappy music? So, of course, I think there is a bit of a history in the drum clinic world that really that kind of started in the '80s. So you have all this stuff that started in the '80s. So when Dave Buckle was playing clinics, he was using the Yamaha DT, DX7 and. Yep. All these synthesizer sounds that were being used to good creative effect by Chick Corea in his band, right? But that kind of became the sound of drum clinic music. So everyone just started using those sounds and not thinking that there was actually a, a origin of that. That was an art with you know, right. Chick Corea and John Scofield and all these these bands that right. were creating that '80s fusion stuff. That it was a fresh sound at the time. It wasn't cheesy. It didn't sound like you're going to the dentist and getting a root canal. <laughs> so there's a bit of that. And I think the other side of it is you can't really learn or teach taste. It has to be developed and kind of fostered over time. So, And I think once you 
if you have great taste, you're not going to necessarily gravitate towards drum solos all the time. So there's a bit of a, a yeah. rub there because it's just a drum solo in most people's hands is a pretty distasteful ex- display of technique. Sure. Agreed. So you're not going to be like, let me make sure I have some music that is really you know, related well, to and, Chopin and, or something. And I mean, honestly, like if you think about having great music, it would it would distract from the drumming. Right. So when the when the music is kind of like dismissive, then all of a sudden it becomes a real drum clinic. Yeah. Um, I when I, I did a, a thing last time I was in Mexico, I did a thing with Eloy Casagrande, and he played a couple uh, Sepultura tracks. And honestly, it wasn't very clinicky at all because we. It was more like just being at a concert, but I was missing. I'm like, where the hell's the guy that's singing? Where's the band? Yeah, it, right. it really wasn't as good as you would think. And then when he played some play along stuff where I would definitely consider the music to be cheesy. It was much more enjoyable because I got to dismiss the music and only pay attention to the drums, which is the whole reason I was there in the first place. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of weird. I, I think I'd feel weird playing a song. You know, I'm going to Mexico. I'm going to play three tracks, three cheesy tracks. <laughs> I don't think they're, che- I mean, the guy that wrote them, Dave McKay, I think is brilliant, but he writes, he writes me drum clinic tracks. Like it's not about him displaying his piano prowess. It's like, let me get out of your way so that you can express yourself and just have a bed of music backing you up. Um, but I am always asking him, like, hey, can you change that to, like, a real piano preset? Like, I don't need that keyboard thing, man. Or or make it a B3. I mean, that's what we've kind of gravitated towards. I'm like, can you yeah. just make that a B3? Like, make yeah. it something organic. I don't want laser. I don't want it to seem like I'm, you know, filming a an episode of Star Trek. Like, yeah. So, I think a um, lot of what we feel is, is crappy is more the... The sound, the the palette of sounds that are being yes. used. So I think it would take an extra effort to be like, all right. I think Mark Giuliano is a good example of this, where he, his taste is so so refined and and aesthetic is is so it's just cool. Yeah, no, so absolutely. I think even when he's playing this kind of electronic music and using synthesizers, there's always a yeah. bit of an analog element to it, where they're running the keyboards through amps or some sort of amp simulation, and yeah. so it's still it. It never just feels like this cold, chloroseptic music with yeah. no human, no no humanity, and no like fire to it. So I think yeah. a lot of that stuff that we think is just crappy drummer music, if they just would have spent a little bit more time on the mix, and you know the choice of preset, the, and the choice tone. of sound, limit it. Say I'm not going to use synthesizers. I'm only going to use vibes, or I'm only going to use a Rhodes. Right. A Rhodes is such a great sound. That yeah, yeah. Well, especially too. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And especially too, if you can, the one thing that Mark has done better than maybe anyone that I've ever met is almost everything he does is fairly timeless. Even when you think it's the most hip thing in the world, it's still going to be pretty cool. I mean, I still listen to the first Hint album. Right. 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 And it's like, man, how does he do that? So, yeah, like you said, sometimes you just have great taste. All right. You ready to get to our picks of the week? Indeed. Okay, guys, please keep sending in your questions and audio questions to MD at Modern Drummer. MD no. Info. I got it. MD Info at ModernDrummer.com. You coughed. I had one mess up. Okay, we're even. What is it again? It's MD Info at ModernDrummer.com. <laughs> Send your questions in. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a great review. Send us uh, some green tea in the mail. Everything will yeah, be golden. Seriously. All right. What is your pick of the week, sir? Mine is something that I'm actually in the process of reviewing right now, um, okay. but I don't think I'm going to be disappointed in it. So DW's uh, developed a bass drum beater with Rich Redman. 
It's called the Black Sheep. It lists for twenty nine ninety nine, and what it is is it's a, a a wood beater, a round wood beater, stained black, and then it comes with a synthetic sheepskin sock, essentially, that you can put over the beater to give it kind of an old vintage felt sound. Oh yeah, look at that! So it gives you the two extremes. You've got the super punchy wood sound. You can just pull that little muppet off of it, and or you put the muppet on it, and you got like a vintage <laughs> muppet. <laughs> By the way, I just threw up in my mouth because you can buy it on Walmart.com, but that's hey. fine. <laughs> Actually, I would prefer you guys go to a local drum shop and get this, but uh, that's awesome, man. Yeah, so I'm in the middle of testing it right now, but I have no, I have no uh, expectations of not, unless the the wool just explodes and, and disappears after an hour. But yeah, but generally, I mean, if you were using that, you're going to be playing a little softer vibe, anyways. That's the whole reason you're using that. Exactly. Right? You're not yeah. going to play like a Meshuggah song with it. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> on your I don't think pedal. so. Oh man, can you imagine this, having two of those? That would be like a, a Muppet show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'd be like no definition. That's cool, man. Yeah. So I'll have more to report on it, but I mean, I think it's just a great idea, and I, I've I've messed around with that in the past of like putting. You know, gym socks over the beater or taping, mm. you know, Benny Greb talked about taping a wristband on it. Yep. And it, it works great, but this is just designed to do that. You don't have to worry about taping it or anything. Yeah, um, I'm, 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 I'm one of those guys where I actually don't like the, um, the, the, I don't know even how you'd say it, but just this, the kind of simple fix thing. I actually like when a product's made to do something. Yeah. yeah. Even though I know I could get out of it for free. It's like, can you just give me something that was designed specifically for this? So I think that's fantastic. All right. Well, my pick of the week this time is uh, we've actually covered their drums, I believe, once. Uh, The company is called A&F Drum Company. Uh, Did we cover them once? I don't know if we have, but I have a review in the can of one of their snare drums. Oh, you do? Yeah. Uh, what, do you know if it's the pancake one or is it one of the brass ones? I don't remember. Uh, okay. I think it was like a four by fourteen. Cool. Uh, I didn't. I didn't test it out. It was my friend Steve and oh. and Austin. Okay. He checked it out. So, well, um, the, they're an amazing drum company. Very very vintage stuff, but brand new and some really cool things. The pancake snare is unbelievable. Um, so check out their stuff, but my, my pick of the week is not their company. It's their Instagram feed. So it's Instagram.com slash a, the letter N as in Nancy F as in Frank Drumco D R U M C O. So it's a N F Drumco, uh, Instagram.com. And they just have some great, great samples of these drums and they're really cool. It's a great vibe that they've created. I know, I don't know a single person at this company. I'm not related to this company. Um, I'm looking at. They've got a 14 – or I'm sorry, excuse me, an 18 by 4 brass bass drum. Right, yeah. Dog. <laughs> Which is could also you, a snare drum. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but could you imagine like uh, walking into somebody's house and you see that and you're like, uh, you're clearly in this to win it. Like <laughs> their stuff is, is really cool, super vintage. I'm actually um, considering buying uh, – they have a – where did it go? They have a uh, six and a half. I'm sorry, a five and a half by fourteen raw brass snare drum. Yeah, and uh, sells for eleven hundred bucks. It's not cheap, but if you look at these things, they shouldn't be cheap. This is really handmade stuff. So, anyways, I, I think I'm actually going to buy one of their raw brass snare drums just because I kind of want it. So, yeah, Garrett uh, Goodwin is using one with Carrie Underwood. Oh, really? Yeah, and it sounds. Nice. He tunes it really low. I think he's using the piccolo, and he tunes it really low, and it sounds awesome. I think they're another example of 
taste being more important than yes. anything else. Anything they've, else. They've created a vibe. They've created a, an aesthetic, and they're never going to deviate from it. And that I think that attracts – they've got their tribe, the people who want that kind of rustic, Man. almost steampunk-looking kind of drum stuff. And yep. every drum's well, going to have that vibe. Yeah, we uh, when I was, I just did that speech in San Francisco to the startup world, and one of the things I talked about there was creating client culture rather than company culture. And if you cultivate your clientele to be like-minded people, then it, it kind of influences your company and influences everybody around it, and and it allows us to get along fairly well because we all kind of believe in the same stuff. So I, I think this is a great example of that. So yeah. A&F Drum Company. Uh, it's A and F, but when you look them up on social media, it'll be A and then the letter N, F Drum Company. So check that stuff out. All right, everybody. Have a fantastic week. Get your butts out there and go practice your drum set. Uh, please keep a po- keep us posted. You can always tag Mike and myself on social media on something you're practicing that you just want to let us know about. We are fans of drumming. We are drummers ourselves, so we, we love seeing what you guys are up to. Keep sending your questions in, and thanks for all of the positive, positive reviews. Really appreciate it. All right, buddy, go take care of that cough. I'm going to go chug some tea. Sweet chicken gumbo. I'm gonna, I've got to teach live lessons all week, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, because I'm, I'm heading off to Mexico next week. So today's oh, lesson right. is we're actually doing a whole three days in a row of style analysis. So we're going to cool. analyze blues today and analyze – what are the things you have to have in your back pocket to get through a blues gig? Not to be a blues master, but get through and really learn the rules. I think people don't really know the rules. And then this is one of those situations where it's like, hey, after your fill, don't hit that big shiny thing called a crash cymbal. Just go right back to the groove. And that's something unique to blues drumming. So we're going to get into a bunch of that. So if you want to, check out Mike's Lessons.com. Until then, everyone have a great week. Take it easy, buddy. See ya.